Well, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, as I said during the announcements, we are going to take a little bit of a break. We're pressing pause on our study in Revelation. We'll pick that back up in the new year. But I wanted to spend some time, three weeks, Lord willing, to look at uh, the Christmas narrative, to look at the Christmas season, to look at why we are celebrating the birth of the baby born in a manger. I don't know how many of you have flown on a plane recently. Show of hands, flown on a a plane recently. One of my favorite moments when flying on a plane is as you're taxiing out, getting ready to take off, probably the hardest job in the universe. The stewardess who stands in the aisle and tells everyone what to do in case the plane catches on fire. Now you think, if that's going to happen to a plane, I want to know exactly what I should be doing during this emergency. But no, there are no people in the plane while she's telling us how to get out alive, caring at all about what she's saying, right? She's just talking, she has the seatbelt. Sometimes even the stewardess, the stewards and the stewardess play along with this, right? Have you seen this where they're kind of going, we know that you don't care. We know that you're not paying attention to us. We'll do this anyway because legally we have to. But everybody looks like, I already know this stuff and it's not going to happen and we'll be fine either way. You'll tell us what to do and nobody really listens. And I, I found that preaching at Christmas can sometimes feel like being the flight attendant. We're People in the pews, just consider your very uncomfortable chair as a pew right now. People think, yeah, I know Christmas. I've heard it all before. I know what it's about. I know the purpose of Christ being born as a baby. I know it. And so as I preach from the word of God and I tell you all about Christmas, you go, yeah, we already know that. And you tune me out, just like you would tune out a flight attendant during takeoff. Martin Luther said it this way, we are so often cold and indifferent to the great joy of Christmas, this joy that has been given for us, because this is indeed the greatest gift that far exceeds all other gifts that God has created. Yet we believe so sluggishly, even though the angels proclaim and preach and sing and their lovely song sums up the whole Christian faith, For glory to God in the highest is the very heart of worship. Have we become sluggish in our understanding of why Christmas should bring about wonder, amazement, glory to God in the highest from our lips and from our hearts? What I want to do over the next three weeks is look at three distinct songs in Luke's gospel that give us an understanding of the amazement of Christmas. Three distinct songs that consider the birth of Christ. The first is the song of Zacharias, sometimes also called Zechariah, interchangeable names. We're going to look at his song this morning. The next Lord's Day, we will look at the song of the angels. And then the next Lord's Day, we'll look at the song of Simeon to bring us back, to recalibrate our understanding, to focus us in on the wonder and the amazement of Christmas. So let me pray to that end and then... We will dive into Luke chapter 1. Father, thank you so much for another opportunity to celebrate Christmas, another opportunity to celebrate Christ, the reason for the season and the reason for everything. 
God, we want to be amazed. We want to stand in awe and in wonder at who he is and at what he has done. So help us to do that this morning as we look at your word, as we turn now and give careful attention to what your word tells us. Help us to glory in, to cherish, to treasure, to love Jesus more because of our time together. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Luke chapter 1 begins with the announcement of a baby being born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. You know that that baby is John the Baptist. And I want to pick it up in verse 5 because it gives us a, a little bit of a flow and a foundation for why the song that Zacharias is going to sing is so important. So verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest, and his name was Zacharias. Sometimes Zachariah, your, might, your translation might say Zachariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and the, the requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Zacharias, a priest, and we are told a righteous priest, a, a blameless priest. Priest doesn't mean that he is sinless, but above reproach. And that's saying something considering back then the priesthood was corrupt. They were using the people to get money, to make money, and to become famous and be powerful. But not Zacharias. And you can see in verse 8, it just so happens, one, one of these Christmas uh, services, we will have to do a just-so-happened sermon on all of the just-so-happens of Christmas, right? We talked about that with Ruth. It just so happened that Ruth goes to Boaz's field. Well, it just so happened that Zacharias is going to be called to be involved in a priestly service here. Now listen to how this works. I want to give you just a summary of how this works, that Zacharias is going to be called and just so happened to be able to be a part of this priestly service. The service of the temple was divided into 24 different divisions, each provided for the needs of the temple service for a week at a time, twice a year. During the major religious festivals, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, all of the divisions are serving together. Since so many priests served in the temple, uh, there's about 18,000 priests serving, entering the holy place to clean the altar of incense, which is what Zechariah is going to do, and to offer fresh incense usually only occurs once in the lifetime of a priest. All of the sons of Levi are going to be workers in the temple, but only the sons of Aaron are going to function as priests, ministering in the Levitical rituals. And he's going to be chosen by lot. So there's just a rolling of the dice or picking straws. And by the way, once your number has been called, once you've been chosen by lot, you could never be chosen to do that job ever again. So somehow, some way, in God's divine providence, Zacharias, his division is appointed, the order of his division, verse 8, and the custom in which he's going to live out this priestly service. He's chosen by lot. He's apparently never done this specific service ever before, or else he wouldn't even be in the running for this. It just so happens that God picks Zacharias 
to go into the temple on this specific day. And it just so happens that Zacharias is married to Elizabeth, who, verse 7 tells us, has never given birth to a child because she's barren and now she's advanced in years. Of all the people that God chooses to carry the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, God chooses a woman who has been barren her whole life, and now the Bible says she's advanced in years. She's very old. So it's kind of strike one and strike two and kind of combination of both of those. Strike three, she's out. There's no way she's going to have a baby. Now, she's going to tell us that when she does have a baby, her disgrace is taken away. And I I think that's why verse 6 is in our Bibles. They have no children, not as punishment by God. They have no children, not as divine judgment by God, because they clearly are righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Please mark this in your heart and in your mind. Childlessness is not judgment by God. We should not go around saying that or thinking that. That's why God says to everyone reading Luke's gospel, they do not have children because they have sinned in some grievous way. They do not have children because that is God's purpose. Because they are righteous, God is going to use them but that does not take away the stigma that Elizabeth and Zacharias feels of not having children. Childlessness, as one author says, is a strange grief which has no focus for its tears and no object for its love. There's no anniversary of childlessness on which friends might send a card of condolence. There's no grave to visit and remember. There's no photograph or name or memory of the child who never came. It's just emptiness notness, a joy that never came, and a hope forever dashed. As we looked this morning in Sunday school, looking and lingering on the narrative of Herod killing all of the male babies in Bethlehem two years and younger, we lingered on that, and we we used divine, just kind of a, a sanctified imagination to press into the white space of Scripture and just ponder what that must have felt like. And I ask you to do the exact same here for Zacharias and Elizabeth. They've wanted to have kids. They've tried to have kids. How many countless times have they been asked the question, when are you going to have kids? And they've had to answer the exact same way. We don't know. Do you want kids? Is this because you don't want kids? Can you imagine Elizabeth crying, of course I want kids. And both Zacharias and Elizabeth, in the midst of a culture and society that says childlessness is a curse from God, they walk around hanging their heads wondering, God, what did we do that you would not give us a child? Elizabeth sees this as a disgrace. She's going to say, you took away my disgrace when John is born. Right now, we can even just stop here and say, Christmas is about God taking away our disgrace. 
The message of Christmas is about God reaching into our narrative and taking away our disgrace. Whether it's real or not, whether it's genuine disgrace or not, Elizabeth doesn't even have real disgrace, right? She has done nothing to receive disgrace. It's just been thrown upon her from the culture. And yet when John is born, she's able to say, my disgrace has been taken away. You've taken away the stigma and the curse. How much more so can we say the exact same thing? God has taken away our true disgrace. And just as the forerunner, John the Baptist, is going to announce the hope that Jesus the Messiah is going to bring, how much more hopeless of a situation can you have in the way that Elizabeth is in her current state, barren and advanced in years, and yet hope's going to come to her? She is not hopeless. And hope will come to her. God is declaring before John is even born that the Messiah is going to come to take away our disgrace and to give us hope. So, Elizabeth and Zacharias, unable to have children, and Zacharias just so happens to be in the temple. In verse 11, an angel of the Lord appears, standing at the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias is troubled when he sees the angel, and fear grips him. Why is he troubled? He has seen an angel that we have not seen for hundreds of years. God has not spoken for hundreds of years. Uh, when the Old Testament closes to the opening of the New Testament, that's 400 years of silence. The heavens are as brass. God is not speaking. No one is saying anything on behalf of God. The last prophet that we had was Malachi, who said, Thus saith the Lord. And he died. God is silent for 400 years. No angels, no prophet, and now... God's going to speak into humanity. And it's going to be Gabriel. We're going to see later on that it's Gabriel, the angel. And Gabriel is going to bring amazing information. This is a big deal, and it's told to us as being a big deal by the very fact that Gabriel is the one that's giving the information. Gabriel is one of two angels in the Bible mentioned by name. This is an important angel. He was last seen in 539 B.C. when he spoke to Daniel. So it's been a long time for Gabriel. Now, I don't know how all this works in heaven, but again, let's use some sanctified imagination to wonder how long Gabriel knew about this information, that he was going to be the one to go down to earth to talk to Zacharias and to say, you're going to have a son. How long had he known that information? How long is he sitting on this sentence? You will have the forerunner. You will give birth to the forerunner. How long has he been holding this in his heart, in his mouth? How long has he been bottled up waiting to say this? He's so excited. And he says the customary line that apparently every angel learns in angel school, verse 13, do not be afraid, Zacharias. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Why? Because your petition has been heard. I think Zacharias would have known exactly what petition that was. What prayer has he been praying over and over and over again? When Gabriel says, your petition has been heard, he must think this is amazing. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you're going to call him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, 
because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. While yet in his mother's womb, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is a a great speech. And I don't know how long Gabriel's been waiting to say this speech, but he says it and he must smile and he must think, the job is done. What is Zacharias going to say? And Zacharias speaks. Gabriel doesn't have to wait very long. And he says, "Uh, how will I know for certain? How will I know this for sure? just, Just think, what would Gabriel's face be the moment that Zacharias says, how am I going to know that for sure? How am I going to know? Gabriel must think, I've been waiting hundreds of years to say this. I finally just got to say it to you. That was not the response I ever expected. I thought maybe death, right? You're just going to fall down dead. I thought fear. I thought uh, just uh, awesome unbelief in the sense of like, this is amazing, this is happening. But I never thought doubting and asking for a sign. He is the sign, right? I'm Gabriel. Like the glory of God is shining off of my face into your face, into your eyes. I am. What other sign do you want? Just looking around. What other, what can I give you that will help you believe? It's almost as if we're going to hear a a little bit of an annoyance from Gabriel when he responds. Zacharias says, how am I going to know for certain? Because I'm old. I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. (laughs) That's the sign. I stand in the presence of God. What other sign do you need? I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Apparently, you didn't receive it as good news, buddy. So behold, this isn't vengeance by Gabriel. This is judgment from God as a sign. You want a sign. I'm going to give you a sign, but in a different way. I'm going to give you a sign that God is trustworthy. And you should have trusted him. Behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people are waiting for Zacharias. He walks out. When he comes out, he's unable to speak. They realize that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs. He's doing a game of charades to them. But he remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. And after these things, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. She kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So we get a prophecy. Zacharias is struggling to believe it. Then Gabriel is going to talk to Mary. Mary's going to sing her song, the Magnificat, which we sang earlier this morning. Drop all the way down to verse 57. We'll pick back the story uh, up in uh, John being born. Verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day when they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. This is the custom, Zacharias Jr., right? Just This is the junior of Zacharias. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, he shall be called John. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. Who thought of that name? Where'd you think of that name? I just, 
again, in the white space, I think she probably says to them, who gave you the job to name the kid? That's my job anyway. Like, why are you saying his name's going to be such and such? I'm telling you what the name is. What's the name going to be? They say, there's nobody in your relatives that's called by that. And so, verse 62, they made signs to his father as to what they wanted, what he wanted him to be called. If you just stop and think about that, they make signs to Zacharias. Why is that happening? They're doing the charades back to him, but he doesn't need the charades done. He's not deaf, right? He's mute. He can hear everything. So they're just caught up in craziness. They're making signs. He's going, I can hear you. Just talk to me. And he asked for a tablet, and he wrote as follows. His name is John. Literally in the Greek, it's John is his name. It's John. Nothing else. How how cool is it to know that you were named by God himself, right? God took upon the task to say, your son will be named John. And so Zachariah says, yeah, John, that's his name. John means God is merciful. God has been merciful to give Zacharias and Elizabeth a baby, to give the forerunner for the Messiah, to give the promise of the Messiah's coming. God is merciful. So he says, his name is John. They're all astonished. John is his name. And at once, verse 64, his mouth is opened, his tongue is loosened, and he begins to speak in praise of God. Now, it's very interesting because Gabriel said, you will be mute until these things come to pass, until these things happen. So when I'm reading it, I would expect when John is born, he'll be able to speak. But it's not when John is born. John is born, and Zacharias has to wait another week. Why? Because Gabriel said, you're going to have a son, and you're going to call his name John. So the, the total fulfillment of that prophecy is really dependent upon Zacharias. Will you actually obey? Will you call his name John? And so when Zacharias says, oh, I'm going to call, I believe I'm going to call his name John, that's when his mouth is opened. And he's going to speak, and as he speaks, verse 65, fear is going to fall upon all those who are around him. All these matters are talked about in the hill country of Judea. All of them kept saying, who is this child? What then is this child going to be? The hand of the Lord is certainly with him. Who is this kid? And the answer to that question, who is this kid going to be? Why is this kid so special? The answer to that question is Zacharias's song. The song that Zacharias sings is an answer to the question of why is this kid so special? He obviously is, but why? Now, Zacharias hasn't spoken in nine months. I don't know about you, but if you couldn't speak for nine months, and then all of a sudden you can speak, for me personally, my mouth would be going a mile a minute. I would just be, let me tell you everything I've been thinking for all these nine months. What does Zacharias do? Immediately his, his mouth is open, his tongue is loosened, and the first word out of his mouth, is blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Praise God. Those are the first words out of his mouth. Praise God. It's been nine months, and he opens his mouth and says, praise God. He's been sitting on that sentence for nine months. Oh, praise God. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Blessed in Latin, benedictus. Uh, That's the customary title that's given to this song. We have Mary's Magnificat, magnify, may may God's name be magnified, magnificat, in Latin, the first word that starts that song. This first word in Latin that starts this song is Benedictus. It's It's a praise, a blessing offered to God, and he blesses God. 
And he does so. In my Bible, it's broken up uh, into little stanzas. We have lost the paragraph chunks of prose, and we've moved into this poetic, uh, my Bible says prophecy. It's a song. Why a song? One commentator says it this way. In contrast to the prose dialogue, the narrative, spoken between characters and passably observed by the audience, songs are often performed facing the spectators and addressing them, establishing a more direct rapport between the actors and the audience. The most successful numbers may elicit such a positive reaction from the spectators that they become showstoppers, literally bringing the action to a halt while the audience registers its approval and occasionally prompts a repetition of the song. It's a showstopper. This, my friends, is Zacharias's showstopper. We've been talking, he's been talking, there's a dialogue going on, and he is going to sing a song directed at God that we get to listen in on. He's singing a solo. He's bringing all of the action to a momentary halt, and he's going to sing a showstopper, and it has two parts. So let's look at Zacharias's showstopper and the two parts that it has. Number one, he's going to bless God. Number two, he's going to bless his son. He's going to bless God, and he's going to bless his son. He's going to bless God, verses 68 through 75. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, because... He's done three things. He's visited us, number one. He's accomplished redemption, number two, for his people. And he's, number three, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. He's done these things. He speaks uh, as if these are good as done. They're already finished. They're already accomplished. He's visited us. He's accomplished redemption. And he's raised up a horn of salvation. He's visited us. What, why is that important? Why is it important that God has visited his people? It's important because he's acting to save his people, and his people, apart from divine visitation, cannot save themselves. The reason why Zacharias says, praise God for visiting us, is because unless God does the work to get to us, we can't do the work to get to God. We cannot get to God. This is Every religion in the world says, God's up on some mountain somewhere, and we have to do the work of religion, of good works, of trying harder to climb the mountain of morality to get to God. Only Christianity says God does the work of coming down the mountain, getting us, and bringing us up to be with him. And so Zacharias says, praise God for doing that work, because apart from you coming to get us, we could never get to you. He's visited us. He's also accomplished redemption. Some of your Bibles might just say he has redeemed his people. He's redeemed us. We need to be reminded of what the word redeem means. We throw that word around a lot. If you come over to my house this afternoon, which you are all welcome to do, we might watch a football game. And it might be because there are several in this room that enjoy the Los Angeles Rams for I don't know what reason. But it might be that we watch the Rams game. And it will probably be, I'll make a prophecy now, that Jared Goff will throw a couple interceptions. And then the commentator, as he throws a game-winning touchdown at the end of the game, the commentator might say something to the effect of, wow, he's really redeemed himself. He did some awful things at the beginning of the game, but man, he redeemed himself at the end. This is why we need to take back that word redeem and understand what it means biblically. Because you and I, 
cannot redeem ourselves. It's impossible for us to redeem ourselves. That's why we praise God that he's visited us and that he's accomplished redemption. We have no part in accomplishing redemption. We cannot redeem ourselves. We're powerless to redeem ourselves, to save ourselves. We need somebody powerful to do that work for us. And that's good news number three. We have a powerful God. He has raised up, verse 69, a horn of salvation for us. Horn of salvation. The horn is a symbol of strength, right? It's the business end of the animal's power, right? This is a good thing that God's coming on the attack. He's on the offensive to do away with our greatest enemy. And this is all because, verse 70 and 71, he's keeping his promise. This is just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This is all a fulfillment of the prophecies that God has made. And so Christmas not only tells us that God is going to take away our disgrace, Christmas not only tells us that God's going to give us hope in the midst of our hopelessness, but Christmas also tells us that God keeps his promises. He promised to do these things, and he's making them happen. He keeps his promises. So how is he going to do it? Verse 72, he's going to show mercy towards our fathers. He's going to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to, his, to Abraham our father, again, all the way back in Genesis 12, he's going to keep his promise to grant that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. This is what God's going to do. He's going to accomplish it. He's visited us. He's going to accomplish redemption by his power and might alone. That's why Zechariah sings. He cannot hold this in. Songs, we sing songs. I don't know if you've ever thought about singing songs from a, a non-Christian perspective, but maybe it's strange to walk into a church as a non-believer and see people standing up and singing about God. But when you stop and think about it, singing is just the fact that some truths are just too amazing to just be spoken. Uh, the, the, one of the greatest realities of that is love songs, right? You say, I love you to somebody that you genuinely care about, but I love you just does not seem deep enough. I love you. And no, there needs to be a better way to express that. And so we sing love songs. That's why Zacharias knows that these are words that are just too amazing to be spoken. They must be sung. And so he sings the first section of this. It's going to split in verse 76, but it actually doesn't split in its grammar, which is very interesting, verses 68 through 79, this song is one long run-on sentence. I love the way this guy writes and thinks and sings. It's just one long run-on sentence. But it is split up thematically into two parts, and it's seen there in verse 76 with the word, and you, child, and I praise God, and I also want to pronounce a blessing on my son, I want to pronounce a blessing on my son. But notice, this comes after blessing God, and it comes much shorter than blessing God. Eight verses to bless God, four verses to bless his son. John is first in birth order, but he is second in significance to the Messiah. Zechariah knows that his son plays a very supportive role, and he prepares the way for the one that's doing the saving, but he knows he does not save himself. He is not the Messiah. And so he says, bless God for eight verses, and then my son, I want to bless you for four. And you, child. What depth of emotion is Zacharias feeling right now? As he cries out to God, and then he turns and he looks at his son. 
I don't think that he's going to be able to say these words without his voice breaking. He is singing about what his son has been prophesied to be. And you, my son. Most of us think and hope and pray that our kids will grow up to be something special. And even if they're not, we tell them that they are. You're special. Before John was even born, Zacharias knew this man is one of a kind. There's only one like him that holds his position as the forerunner to the Messiah. You, my son. Why does he bless his son? Why does he thank God for what his son is going to do? Because he is called a prophet of the Most High. He will go before the Lord to prepare God's way to give his people the knowledge of salvation. Why is there a way that needs to be prepared? Why does he need to go about preparing the way of God, preparing the way of the Messiah? How do the people need preparation? In what way? The reality is the people of God were not accurately perceiving their need. They thought their greatest need was freedom from Roman oppression. And so John's going to show up to say, that's a need, but you have an even greater need. And I think that John says the exact same thing to you and to me this morning. We do the exact same thing. We're no different than the people of Israel. What is our greatest need? Well, we need more money. We need our marriages fixed. We need a home. What's your greatest need? John tells us this morning, no, no, those are all needs, yes, but your greatest need is redemption by God himself. That's our greatest need. We need our sin to be dealt with. But God is trustworthy. He's promised to deal with our sin on our behalf, so he's going to come and save. He's going to intervene. So John, verse 76, is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's going to be the forerunner. Verse 77, he's going to tell people how they can be right with God. Show them their greatest need and tell them this is how you can be right with God. The knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sin. God will forgive their sin. How does this happen? Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That word sunrise in the middle of verse 78, old translations say, will, with which the day spring from on high will shine upon us, will visit us. Day spring, not, not the Christian card company, Dayspring, the original meaning of this verse is uh, that word is that, that star that shows uh, more brightly than any other star in the sky. Uh, we looked at it uh, a couple weeks ago in Revelation, the bright and morning star. The star that when the sun is coming out, it's the last star to go away. You can still see it when the sun's rising. This is a prophecy, a prophecy all the way in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, that a star will rise out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel where God's going to rule and reign in righteousness. The bright morning star is going to shine. Why? Why is the bright morning star, star going to shine? It's verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. There's simply nothing more wonderful in life than this, the tender mercy of God, that God would withhold from us what we deserve. If we are going to be saved, it's only going to happen if God gives us tender mercies. And so this Christmas season, I want to just plead with all of our hearts 
to work hard, work diligently, work intentionally, labor and linger over contemplating the mercies, the tender mercies of God. May Christmas not be just a routine holiday to enjoy, and yes, thank you God for sending Jesus, and we'll move on. Work hard to contemplate the tender mercies of God. Verse 79, there's a quote back to Isaiah chapter 7, which says God's going to give light to those in darkness. This is why we hang up lights outside of our house. I've always thought Christmas is strange. You go inside your house, you take lights, you put them on the outside of your house, you go outside of your house, you get a tree, and you put it on the inside of your house. Just a bunch of reversals happening. Why do we put lights on our house? Because light is shining into darkness. And you and I are in this prayer, are in this song, verse 79, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. We all appear in this verse. We are all in the shadow of death. We are all hopeless in the darkness. I remember growing up, my grandparents lived in Palm Springs, and there was a big mountain that you could climb, and my family went hiking on this mountain, trying to go up to the top, and Somehow, some way, I didn't even know this until we got back, but somehow we lost the trail, um, completely got lost. My dad just kept on trucking along, thinking we'll find it eventually. And the sun went down, and I'm just thinking this is a very long hike. This is really fun. I hope we have dinner soon. And I remember talking to my dad after we finally got back home. And my dad told me, we were completely lost. I did not know where we were, and I was actually looking, before we ended up finding the trail again and making our way back, I was looking for a place, maybe a cave or somewhere in the the side of the mountain where we could dig in and just kind of hunker down until the next day. It was freezing cold, it was high elevation, and he thought, we might not get out of here. We need to find a way to hunker down in this mountain and wait. And then he said he saw lights. He saw where we had come from, and he just started walking that direction, and we made it back home. That's the idea of this verse. We are in darkness, afraid that we might not make it, and then all of a sudden we see lights, and we walk towards the light, but in reality, what's in this verse is, is flipped, because it's not us seeing light and going towards it. We are in the shadow of death. It is us saying We have tried as hard as we could try to make it out alive. We've eaten everything that we could find to eat. We have tried to dig in. We've tried to make ourselves a refuge from the storm and a refuge from the darkness, and there's nothing that can save us. We've done everything that we could do. And it's as if we all are lying down on the side of a mountain in the darkness, freezing cold, and just saying we've tried everything and tonight we're going to die. We've run out of food, out of water. We have no shelter. We're going to die. And then as we close our eyes to sleep and die, hopeless, we see a light coming to get us. We don't get up and walk towards it. We don't have the ability to to do that. We just lay there trying as desperately as we can to say, help, 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 but we don't even have the strength to do that. And then all of a sudden, that light finds us. That's what Jesus did. 
He came into our darkness. He found us. He picked us up and he brought us to himself. He saved us by his tender mercies. Christmas is about God taking away our disgrace. Christmas is about God giving us hope in hopeless situations. Christmas is about God being trustworthy and keeping his promises. Christmas is about God intervening to save us when we were powerless to save ourselves. And Christmas is also about us being like John the Baptist to go tell people that that's what Christmas is about. John's whole job was to go tell people Jesus is coming to save you. And if you admit you need saving, he's your savior. He's the one for you. So just like John the Baptist, you and I have the privilege of going into the world where people sit in darkness and say to them, the Messiah has come. Turn from sin and trust in him. That's the reason why Zacharias can't just speak these words. They must be sung. Father, thank you so much for Zacharias' song that teaches us the glory of Christ. I pray that we would remember our own hopelessness in darkness, unable to save ourselves, with no possibility of redeeming ourselves. But God, rich in mercy, loved us and gave himself for us. God, help us now as we contemplate your tender mercies, our own lostness. God, help us to glory in Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us.